0: I'm Susie Anetta, editor-in-chief of Design Anthology. In today's episode of the podcast, I'm talking with Sarah Williams Goldhagen, who's dialing in from her home in the Catskills in upstate New York. Sarah, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you, I'm happy to be here. So I wanted to actually start out uh, by asking you about your father because I read that he was quite an influence on your life. He was a city planner uh, and yeah, you said that he had been a strong influence. So I wanted to Mm -hmm. to perhaps ask you to talk a little bit about what you may have learned from him and how he may have influenced uh, specifically your academic studies and your career.
1: Well, I, I want to say that's the first time I've gotten that question and I'm delighted that you've asked it. <laughs> um, so my father was uh, got into city planning uh, just at the time, really, in the United States that the profession was coming into its own in the 1940s uh, and 1950s. And uh, he, I'll try not to make this too expensive, but he was sort of an interesting character because he was born to a lot of wealth, uh, into an extremely socially and politically conservative family and basically rejected all of that and went into this very sort of left-leaning, socially conscious profession of city planning. Uh, And then he also went to law school. So he was, he did, law and city planning kind of the nexus of that and he wrote the what was for decades the standard legal textbook basically seven volumes on uh, law and city planning and he was one of the first people to identify that uh, zoning was being used for discriminatory purposes and he was a longtime advocate Uh, for affordable housing. So what did I learn from him? I learned that social justice is is work that's never complete and that it's a, a duty to in some way or another devote yourself to the betterment of lives of people who have a lot less than you do. Uh, and so a, a little bit counterintuitive, then I went off and got a PhD in art history, which doesn't seem to be a whole lot about social justice, but I think I was always drawn to writing about architecture in the built environment because I understood how saturated the built environment is with not only history, which makes it really interesting, uh, but also with the issues of politics and social justice. And in my writing, pretty much all of my writing uh, throughout the decades, and it's taken a few different turns, that's been a very strong theme.
0: That's an incredible influence. I'm glad I asked you that question. So I read uh, your book, Welcome to Your World, How the Environment Shapes Our Lives, uh, I b- believe, you know, not long after it was published, which I think was 2017. Is that correct? Have I got that That's date correct. right? That's correct, yes. Okay. So, you know, people's, our experience of architecture and our built environment uh, was an area that was previously understudied and undertaught and under theorized, you've said. And in your book, mm-hmm. Welcome to Your World. How the environment shapes our lives includes research from biophilia, cognitive neuroscience, and environmental psychology to, you know, shed a little light on these human experiences of our worlds. Uh, you know, the psychological impact of the built environment on our mental and physical well-being seems entirely obvious. I'm mm-hmm. curious to know why it's taken so long for this to be a field of study. Can you shed some light on that?
1: It's it's a complicated question and it has to a lot of it has to do with sort of institutional concerns. Uh, again, I speak mostly about the United States because it is a little bit different. At least the other place I know well, of course, is Europe and Latin America to some extent. In the states, especially, architecture has been taught and situated within the academy. Uh, at, has been largely taught as a fine art. And so closely allied with the humanities and schools of technology where engineers go are are split off. Now this is different in Europe, but in the States has clearly been like this. And the result of that in the, pretty much from the seventies onward uh, was, uh, and, and still remains, remains the case is that the architecture when you were being trained to be an architect the theoretical apparatus that you were being taught very often came out of whatever was predominant in the academy within the humanities and from the 70s 80s and 90s and it's changing but too slowly um, that was cultural studies, post-structuralism, for structuralism, then post-structuralism, postmodernism, and so on, um, which is a heavily Marxist inflected um, kind of theoretical structure in which you are trained to think about very large social forces and not to focus very much on Uh, on experience on the ground. Uh, And so basically the work that I'm doing comes out of the academic discipline of, of, or academic pursuit and philosophical pursuit of phenomenology. Uh, And um, phenomenology was seen as something that was sort of clueless about larger political, the ways that larger political and social forces were duping people into supporting the system and too focused on the individual. Uh, And so within this theoretical landscape, phenomenology or human psychological and individual and bodily experience was simply one theory among a lot of other theories that had no competing with a lot of other theories that had had no sort of cachet within the academy. So what's changed in the last 20 years is that because of the birth of cognitive neuroscience and advanced techniques to study the brain uh, and the relationship of brain to behavior, is that the basic fundamental precepts of phenomenology have been proven to be correct. Um, And so therefore phenomenology um, is no longer one theory among competing theories. It's the correct way to think about human experience in the
0: environment. So given all that we know now and the research that exists uh, and the evidence that points towards you know this sort of deep but also broad-reaching impact on our mental uh, and physical well-being um, mm-hmm. that our built environment sort of provides, has this learning kind of trickled into the academia in in terms of architecture and interior designers? Is this is this being taught to them now? No. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> so and why, why why not? Why do you think that is? Um,
1: you know, architecture has traditionally always always been a profession that moves a lot more slowly than the arts does. Uh, And that's because building is very expensive. And a lot of training goes into it. And there's a whole institutional apparatus around uh, in the academy around teaching. So the people who are teaching are still people who have no training in this. And, and a lot of you know, they could, they, their worldview has been shaped in a very different landscape. And this, uh, this requires a fair amount of ramp up in terms of acquiring scientific knowledge, knowledge about the science, knowledge about psychology, and a shift in orientation that people who are mid-career are, are you know, it's understandable. They're just not going to do that. I mean, most of them are not going to do that because uh, they already have their way of teaching, and they have their way of looking at the world. And this seems quite antithetical and maybe a little bit threatening. I mean, it, it, I, I have been surprised by how um, resistant architects have been to some of this. I mean, they're resistant in two ways. One is they say, oh, you know, this is not that important. Or the other thing they say is, well, you know, we know it all. Um, And um, it requires a fair amount of scientific understanding. Uh, And when I say scientific, I mean the behavioral sciences, but nonetheless, you know, and and a kind, okay, that's one that's one part of it is that sort of institutional inertia. The second part of it is that this kind of orientation, which is an orientation that, uh, that looks at how we as human beings uh, respond to and have evolved to respond to and relate to our environments, which now include principally built environments, requires making generalizations about people as humans. And that is another thing that runs counter very much to the current intellectual climate, which is so based on identity politics. There's nothing wrong with identity politics at all, but it emphasizes sort of a particularistic individual experience. Uh, and so, well, some, a lot of what I hear in my lectures is, well, how can you make these generalizations about how how humans respond to light or to nature or this or that? Everybody's different. People have different ethnicities and so on and so forth. And of course, the answer to that is that we're all humans. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I, I used to say... Uh, I've said many times in my lectures that you know for for 25 years i studied what was different about people like you know sort of culturally specific knowledge that you would get from looking at a certain architect's ideas or practices or so on and then i became interested in what wasn't different um you know what we shared because we are all humans we you know we develop in in environments, we've evolved through thousands and thousands of years. Uh, And um, so this is another sort of paradigmatic mind shift that I think is necessary Uh, and and it's happening. It's happening in part, I think, because of climate change. Um, Because we're all threatened by climate change. That's a global phenomenon. And uh, and the solutions are, transnational, trans ethic, and so on. And so I think there is coming to be much more of an emphasis on the problems and experiences that humans share.
0: So I wanted to ask you a little bit about the senses actually, because I think it's it's through those that we will, you know, experience the spaces that we're in and and perhaps actually even ask you why or to focus on sight and and why we're so still obsessed with that and why we favor that over other senses when uh, we're designing spaces to to live in and um, to inhabit. Do you have any thoughts Mm -hmm. on that?
1: Absolutely. Um, Why we focus on sight, I mean, there are physiological reasons, there are cultural reasons, there are all sorts of reasons. Um, All right, physiologically, Close to 50% of our brain is devoted to processing the information from our from our visual system. So part of this is neurologically instantiated, our emphasis on sight, and we are neurologically wired to privilege that information. Of course, unless we're blind and then things change, but that's one reason. Um, I think the second reason, and this has come to be more and more the case since, probably since the, in the post-war period, since World War II, is that visual culture is so much more predominant and, and increasingly more predominant in uh, in our worlds. And now that's become accelerated drastically with social media and and so on and so forth and the you know sort of just the absolute image saturation that we have Uh, but even as uh, long ago as the 70s and 80s architects were beginning to talk about how visual culture and the predominance of photography and so on were changing the way they designed um in the sense that they would design, you know, a friend of mine once joked that he used design for the he used to design for the money shot. It's like if it took a good photograph. I mean, he wasn't serious. He's actually a much better architect than that. It was sort of a self-deprecating comment, but uh, that's the way they sell themselves.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. And yet you've commented in the past that um, that talking about beauty in an architecture and design or, uh, you know, in relation to architecture and design, particularly in an academic context, is off limits. And, you know, obviously beauty is quite subjective, but that seems like a contradiction to me. If there is scientific reason why we favour sight over other senses, wh- why is why are we not allowed to talk about beauty in, in the world of architecture and design?
1: Uh, again, it, it goes back to what I was talking about before, which is the kind of predominance of cultural studies and the assumptions about culture that come along with uh, cultural studies, which is, um, which is that there is sort of a hegemon, a kind of amorphous hegemon out there that is determining How people respond to their environment on a psychological level. Uh, And according to that point of view, beauty is part of that hegemon, right? So, you know, for example, beautiful faces are Aryan or, you know, Caucasian faces of a certain type. Um, and that leaves out all sorts of disenfranchised groups and reinforces a certain cultural dominance and even social and political dominance of, of, of Caucasians. Um, that's just one example. Uh, the thing that is, that may be true to some extent, however, what is emerging and this is really emerging out of cognitive neuroscience there's this one cognitive neuroscientist named Anjan Chatterjee who works on beauty in particular and then his his work follows a lot a whole bunch of other people who have worked on physical beauty Um, Chatterjee works on beauty and art is that we really do have certain hardwired preferences um, I mean, you give pictures of a whole array of different kinds of women's faces to people all over the world, and there will be a, a remarkable amount of agreement about which faces are the most beautiful um, and it, wherever you go. So that's part of the reason that it has been been not very popular to talk about beauty because it seems to reinforce kinds of stereotypes. You know, symmetry is better than asymmetry, whatever. Anyway, it's also it's a complicated thing to talk about because uh, people like novelty, we're wired to like novelty. Uh, And so uh, if you So the things that will be seen to be beautiful in one generation um, will, will be a little different in the subsequent generation. That doesn't mean that you shouldn't talk about beauty because there's a lot that isn't different. I mean, but a lot of it is very abstract. Take, for example, we now know that people are quite drawn to fractal geometries. Which is these uh, what are called self same geometries that repeat at a lot of different scales. Like if you take an aerial view of a coastline, um, the coastlines are organized around fractal geometries. Fractals are found, are quite pervasive in nature. So those look different. There are a lot. Of, I mean, there are fractal geometries in the way trees grow and all sorts of things. Uh, they look different, but in fact, underlying them are certain geometric principles that that are unchanging. Um, so that's the other thing: is that we're just developing the tools to analyze these kinds of phenomena. And um, and the other thing that's changed is that. With the development of technologies to study the human brain in action, I mean, as it functions, the first technology is functional magnetic resonance imaging, fMRIs, uh, others have, have followed. Um, you know, it, it's only been 20 or 30 years that we've been able to really analyze how the human brain is processing information as it processes it. Um, you, You couldn't do that before because we didn't have the technologies. And so all you knew about the brain was from studying people who had brain disorders or brain damage. Uh, and seeing how they weren't functioning and then making inferences about how the brain did function.
0: That's very interesting. I feel like I could uh, (laughs) (laughs) talk about just that subject all evening actually. Um, But I've, I've got a quote here from you from an earlier interview or another interview where you said that architecture and the built environment is central to the formation of our identities. And I wonder if you could expand on that statement for me.
1: Oh, sure. Um, this actually is something that I may be taking up in my – I've got a lot of notes for a new book, uh, which, is, uh, which concerns this issue. So one of the first things – I mean, I just read a ton when I started working on these issues, and um, there's a very famous cognitive neuroscientist. His name is Eric Candle who figured out neurologically how the brain learns uh how it encodes new information he's won a nobel prize and uh was reading about and then he subsequently he wrote a memoir and then he subsequently written a bunch of books on art uh and uh, art and experience actually and i learned from eric candle Uh, Something that is now widely known, at least among people who study cognition, that uh, the area of the brain that encodes information into long-term memories, it's called the hippocampus. Mm -hmm. Um, It's where information is kind of collected from all the different senses, tactile, visual, olfactory, whatever, whatever, right? Um, In the hippocampus, all that information is sort of bound together into a memory and then sent back out to the places that it came from. Anyway, the first part of that is what's important. Um, What's interesting about this is that the hippocampus is also the place in the brain that is responsible for spatial navigation. So long-term autobiographical memories are encoded by place uh you can't do it any other way i mean if you think back once i read this i i just thought back i reflected on my own experience and i thought about my early memories and so on and i realized each one of them was situated in a place Um, in some way or another there was always like the light coming in from the upper right hand side or the feel of the bark on the apple tree i climbed or whatever um and i And it's true for everybody because neurologically it has to be that way. And if you think about it in evolutionary terms, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, you're trying to figure out where the food is, where it's safe to sleep, you know, where that's what you're I mean, when humans were far less developed in civilization, they needed that those place markers. Mm. Uh, And so it's still true. Um, Okay, so if our long-term autobiographical memories, that's what they're technically called, are always saturated or permeated or inflected with place, what that means is that the places we've been and the places we experience are central to the formation of our ident- of our autobiographies, biographies which are central to our identity.
0: That's so interesting. So, I mean, to deduct from that then, and maybe this is simplistic, do you think that possible, it's possible then that our cities and buildings might actually be making us stupid, or, you know, maybe to put it (laughs) a little bit more politely, inhabiting, or sorry, inhibiting our ability to learn or retain information. Do you think that that's a, a fair statement maybe? I think that it,
1: I, I I wouldn't go I wouldn't go as global as you did, which is that our cities are making us stupid. Although I love that phrase, <laughs> I'm probably going to steal it. But, sure. <laughs> um, but of course, but the, the parts of our cities, which are most of our cities, quite frankly, um, that are poorly designed or designed in ways, designed and constructed in ways that. Do not accord with what we need as human beings with feet on the ground and what cognitively we need. Yes, absolutely, for sure. I mean, take an example under stimulation. uh, You know, let's take like a hugely long brick, undifferentiated brick wall, block long building. Um, So glass of brick, but I mean, nothing going on, right? It's the same thing at 200 feet, at 400 feet, at 600 feet. Well, a friend of mine who's a cognitive neuroscientist, Colin Ellard, actually studied this. And um, he put sensors and um, portable EEG helmets on people, and he had them walk along two streetscapes. One was that kind of boring, not very differentiated, same thing one place in another building. And then he had them walk in on a different block where there were lots of stoops and stairs and places to go in and so on. And um, people's stress levels went up dramatically when they were walking alongside the boring streetscape. Their cortisol levels went up, their heart rate variability was much worse, and so on and so forth, because people need a certain amount of cognitive stimulation. You know, we're omnivores, like we're always looking. We want patterns because we want to know that the world is an orderly place, right? That's Mm -hmm. what helps us to feel safe. But we also want novelty because we're constantly taking in new information and streetscapes, and buildings and interiors that don't give us that make us anxious.
0: So I'm, you know, I wonder what your thoughts are on how uh, maybe our consciousness or uh, yeah awareness of our surroundings may have changed throughout the last few years, the pandemic, um, COVID, obviously with. You know being a lot of people isolating at home or being um sort of stuck in their own smaller communities rather than traveling and you know that lack of variety do you do you think that the general public has become much more conscious of of their surroundings during this time
1: yes i do Uh, and you know i'm biased so um take my answers with that in mind but i think I think for sure, uh, at least in what I see and what I read, that being stuck in one place has, especially during the lockdowns, has made people much more aware of the effects of their environment on their internal landscapes uh and emotions and it's you know there is a social component to that so it's hard to kind of parse out which part is because of deficits of social contact and which part is because of the overwhelming presence of the physical um built environment but um you know if you read any shelter magazine or listen to podcasts or whatever people say whoa you know i didn't realize how much this bedroom you know, how how terrible light was in my bedroom. And I went out and I did this and that and so on. And, you know, people accommodating and changing their spaces, not only for because of working at home, but just to make them into spaces that help them to feel more well. Um, so I do think that there is a change. And I think that uh, I just have noticed in terms of my work that I mean, I think it was sort of inevitable, my work, other people were doing work along the same lines as I was, and it was because we were picking up on the changes and the new information and research coming out of the sciences. But uh, I think the receptivity, particularly among younger people, to these ideas has gone way up because of the pandemic.
0: So I'm curious to ask you what you think the future of humanity might look like if if we don't sort of pay much more attention to how our mental health is being affected by our built environment, do you think there is a a mental health care crisis looming or is that being a bit dramatic?
1: It's not being dramatic at all. And I don't, in fact, I think it's understating the case. It's not that there's a mental health care crisis looming. There is a mental health care crisis. It exists i mean uh, again i'm most familiar with the figures in the united states but suicide rights have gone way up domestic abuse rates have gone way up um people are falling apart i mean it, it's it's horrifying actually mental health is such a it's actually a topic about which i know a lot um and it, 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 the social systems to deal with this are so underdeveloped, are so drastically underdeveloped. It's really, it's it's very sad. And it's like one of these, it's like people who smoke and then get lung cancer. I mean, talk about a preventable illness. This is preventable. That's not wholly preventable because in order not to get lung cancer from smoking, you just have to not smoke, Um, you know mental illness has a lot of different factors that play into it, including genetic and, you know, family and social relations and all sorts of other things. But, um, you know, we know environments help. I mean, hospital patients who go into are taken into gardens, have cortisol levels that, that go down dramatically within seconds to minutes. Uh, so there are there are concrete changes that can be changed that will ameliorate help uh, these help suffering people, uh, and yet you know the the built environment is just cast off into the marketplace as if these issues didn't matter, and they do, and they matter more and more.
0: Yeah, it's interesting that you say that. Uh, so, you know, you I think you've said in the past that you're calling for a revolution. I think your book certainly feels like a rallying cry for a revolution in our built environments. Do you, do you think anyone's listening to that, to that cry? Has anything changed in the years since you published um, Welcome to Your World?
1: Well, one thing I learned from the publication of the book is that, you know, <laughs> I guess I was late to the party in learning this. Is you know, change is very slow, and there are a lot of institutional factors in place that are that need to be changed in order for uh, a human-centered orientation to the built environment to become widespread. That being said, yes, things are changes changing for sure, Uh, and. This kind of change, which requires people who are spending a lot of money building things to adopt a different orientation to how they think about what it is they're doing and what they demand of their designers, thats it's going to take time, uh, but Absolutely, things are changing. I mean, there's uh, there's an organization, actually, it was when I started, it was almost a dormant organization called the Academy of Neuroscience for Architecture, if you can believe that such a thing exists. Uh, it's based at the Salk Institute uh and when i started working on my research it was basically just a a website that nobody was paying much attention to it's now an organization that that has hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of members and sponsors conferences every other year and uh, that more and more people are interested in there's a, a lab based at johns hopkins called the international arts and mind lab that is organizing events Around human-centered design in the built environment, there are, um, there's another sub-organization. I won't bother to say that has uh, that's working on human-centered design in the built environment, which is you know, which basically requires collaboration across disciplines, from cognitive neuroscientists to environmental psychologists to social anthropologists and so on to designers. Um, which means you have to kind of have a group of people who are willing to loosen the disciplinary boundaries among these different professions and disciplines. Um, And uh, this is a sub-organization of ANFA, the Academy of Neuroscience for Architecture that has 200 members from across the globe, people in Singapore, people in Brazil, everywhere, who get together every couple of months Uh, to talk about how to advance the profession and present work to each other. So um, there's certification programs coming up. They're not perfect, like the WELL certification program. uh, and uh, Some on the margins of sustainability, lead certification and so on that are beginning to talk about and embrace these issues. So things are definitely
0: changing for sure. Well, that's good to hear. I want to thank you so much for your time, Sarah. It's been a real pleasure chatting to you and I definitely am looking forward to reading your next book.
1: Sure. It's my pleasure. It's been fun talking. Thank you.
0: (laughs) Thanks so much.